Typically, our author interviews have no spoilers. These episodes are meant to be a litmus test to see if you want to read the book and find out more about the story that the author is talking about. Sometimes we cannot help but ask about the ending and all sorts of spoilers. So today's episode with Ashley Audrain, author of The Push, will have spoilers. Please see the show notes if you haven't read the book and you want to skip those parts. Ashley Audrain previously worked as the publicity director of Penguin Books Canada. Prior to Penguin, she worked in public relations. She lives in Toronto, where she and her partner are raising their two young children. The Push is her debut novel and was an instant New York Times bestseller. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm a fan of the show, so I'm I'm really happy to join you guys today. Thanks. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about The Push and what inspired this story for you? Sure. So the push is about a woman named Blythe. And she comes from a history of women who have really struggled with motherhood. And she's determined that she's going to be different. She's going to have a different kind of experience and be the very warm, loving, engaged mother that she wishes she always had. And so she and her partner named Fox, they have a baby, they welcome a baby to the world. His name is Violet. And it's not long until Blythe starts to think that there is something wrong with Violet. She is quite an aloof, sort of a distant, kind of angry little girl. uh, And she soon begins acting maliciously towards other children, you know, around preschool age. And the problem, of course, is that her husband cannot see what she sees in their daughter. You know, he thinks this is very much a result of you know, the maternal anxiety that Blythe has carried for so long about motherhood. And so they try to move on and they have another baby and she instantly finds that connection she'd always been looking for in their son, Sam. And I won't give too much away after that, but there is you know, an incident that happens in the family involving young Violet and they're all really forced to take a look at who Violet is, who their daughter is, who Blythe herself really is, you know, what has happened. And yes, the family sort of unravels from there. Yes, they do. <laughs> Yes, to put it mildly. (laughs) So as you know from listening on Pop Fiction Women, we discuss complicated women, which is not that crazy of a thing to us. It just means real three-dimensional human beings with contradictions and conflict. And Blythe certainly qualifies. I heard you say that you wanted to challenge the trope that there was only the quote-unquote bad mother or the perfect mother, and that you wanted to make sure Blythe lived in the gray area, which we love. So we'd like for you to tell us, you know, a little bit more about Blythe. Sure, yeah. That is my hope for Blythe, is that we understand her as a woman who sort of lives in that gray, which is where I think we all live, you know, to some degree. When I first sat out to write this book, I didn't know much or have much of a plan about exactly who Blythe was or where her story was going to go or what was going to happen in this book. You know, her voice came to me so naturally and sort of quickly it really was just always there you know from the first day that I sat down to start writing her and I think I really just discovered her through the process of writing developing her through these scenes that sort of just came to me about what one woman's journey through motherhood would look like if it was not anything like the journey that we are really taught to expect you know it's funny I think many writers would say this but the book is always something different to you once it is the book that it is and it is out in the world than it is at the time you're writing you know it sort of changed The book's meaning, I think, sort of changes to you as you go. I can see it in a bigger way now. But I think really just what I wanted to do was just explore a really dark version of motherhood. And I think that what it is really is a culmination of a lot of the fears that I had about what being a mother would be like, or that I think many women have had about what being a mother would be like. And so I sort of just took Blythe down that road. And I think, you know, it was always important to me that Blythe just be, this book is told in her voice, it is told in the hybrid point of view and that she is this book is really Blythe's voice speaking to her husband directly you know she addresses you meaning her husband but you also sort of feel like that person as the reader like you're being told the story from her that wasn't really a conscious decision it sort of was just the way her voice always was and that now I can see I think that was because I just really wanted to go deep with her and I wanted it to feel very intimate and I wanted her to be able to really tell us how she was feeling and really tell us what was on her mind and it has sort of a confessional tone to it 
it. And I think that that's how we kind of get into that complicated part of her and that these are the things that she writes in this book are things that she has never said aloud before. They are not something that she would ever tell a best friend and that she couldn't tell her partner, her husband at that time, but she is sort of confessing to them now. And I think that that's maybe where part of her complication comes from. You know, she is at a certain point in her life where she sort of like gives zero fucks now. Yes. She's kind of like, okay, yeah. this is it. Like, yeah. I'm just going to tell you exactly what I've always wanted to tell you that I never have. And I think that we, we, we've we reached a sort of breaking point in her as a woman. And I'm just so interested in that breaking point. I'm so interested in what drives a woman to that particular point in their history or in their life. Oh, yeah. And I love the use of the you does accomplish so much and just gives it such a depth and, and intimacy that as you were saying. But the other aspect of this book that I just jumped off the page is it's not just Blythe's story. You weave in scenes with her mother, Cecilia, and her grandmother, Etta. And you set our expectations right away in the epigraph, which I'd love to read. This was so mind-blowing to me. So it says, before we were conceived, we existed in part as an egg in our mother's ovary. All the eggs a woman will ever carry form in her ovaries when she is a four-month-old fetus in the womb of her mother. This means our cellular life as an egg begins in the womb of our grandmother. Each of us spent five months in our grandmother's womb, and she in turn formed within the womb of her grandmother. We vibrate to the rhythms of our mother's blood before she herself is born. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, that, yes. <laughs> yeah, that blew us away. And then you carry those themes yes. throughout. I mean, there's a part where Blythe says, um, after a discussion with her own mother, you wrote, I started to understand during those sleepless nights, replaying the things I'd overheard, that we are all grown from something, that we carry on the seed. And I was part of her garden. And then later, Blythe's mother tells her, I don't want you learning to be like me, but I don't know how to teach you to be anyone different. So just tell us more about why you wanted this to be not just Blythe and Violet's story, but also Cecilia and Etta's and just this idea of how we're all so deeply affected by the experiences of the women who came before us, whether we like mm. it or not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for that. Yeah. Even hearing you read that now, it's like, I mean, that quote still blows my mind every time I hear it. And yet we know scientifically, biologically, it makes sense, but it still just feels so crazy. As I was writing Blythe's character, I always knew she was complicated. And I think I was discovering the ways in which she was. And as I was writing through her experience of motherhood, I really just kept thinking, although this wasn't my plan initially, you know, I really just kept thinking, I, I can't really understand who Blythe is as a woman, as a mother unless I understand the woman that she came from and what that mother's experience was like and how she was taught or not taught, you know, to be a mother, how that was kind of injected in her. And so that's why I developed this character of Cecilia and decided to kind of do more of a multi-generational story with the backstories. And then as I was writing about Cecilia, basically the same thing happened where I thought, I really want to know what complicated woman did she come from? What does that look like? And how is that carried along? And so that part of the story was developed quite later in the process of writing, I would say. And the book kind of took that form, I think more as a development of just exploring the character. But I think it doesn't really surprise me that the book went in that direction, I think in hindsight, because I have always been so interested in that, interested in what we carry forward from the women that we come from and how inescapable that is, whether you like that or not. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that I have a very good relationship with my mother and I'm, it's a privilege to be raised by a mother like her and her as well. But I was always very, very, very aware I think even as a little girl, that that was not the case for everybody. I, I always had this kind of heightened awareness that to be given the gift of a very warm, nurturing, empathetic mother, that it exactly was that, you know, a gift. And how does it shape you if not? How does it shape you to feel like maybe your mother regretted having you? You know, if you felt like a burden instead of a joy in your mother's life, you know, what would that do to you? What would that do to a woman? So those were, I think, all those very real <laughs> scenarios or questions that I was exploring. Yeah, but even if you have a good relationship with, with one's mother, it's still very complicated, especially as you become a mother, if that's someone's choice to become a mother, and then the things you want to replicate, the things you don't want to replicate, does that feel like rejection? And then what kind of expectations are on you for the things that you do want to carry on? Mothers and daughters are 
very complicated, even when they're great. Now, of course, you've added so many more layers of what if it's not even good. That's, that's a whole other story. And it just takes the idea of nature and nurture to what can you escape? What can't you escape? And it's fascinating stuff. What confidence as a writer that, I mean, I'm just thinking of workshops I've been in. People would say, you might have needed to know that, but we don't need to know that, right? <laughs> Cut that backstory. And my gosh, I really, truly was thinking about it as I was reading. And I'm like, this stuff is so compelling and special. I loved it so much. If it had ended up on the cutting room floor, I would have been devastated, right? Like, <laughs> Thank you. So I'm so glad that that oh, worked thanks. that way. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know. You know, that whole idea of the backstory, I know it, I definitely had moments where I thought, is it too much? How much do we need to know? I don't know. And I think at the end of the day, you just have to kind of trust and go. That, but I will say that that backstory went through a lot of revision with my editors to get it to a place where I felt like it added and didn't distract the reader. And so thank you for saying that because it took a lot of work to get Good, to get good. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And also, you know, you can't just write something and think it works. It has to be shaped and really serve the story. But I just love it because it felt counterintuitive to that idea that you should cut all that. It's not the main story. And it made the main story so much richer and more compelling. So we're glad nobody convinced you to, yes. to do away with yes. it because it obviously spoke to us. But we have a real interest in mommy issues on this podcast too. So clearly that would speak to us. But one of the things I think is most relatable that you explore in the push is the expectations that society puts on women to be mothers and then to be a certain kind of mother. And I heard you say there was time for you, I think in your early 20s, when you wondered whether you had the maternal instinct. And I too felt that way. And honestly, I will tell you guys here that I sometimes still feel this way, even now as a mother, that maybe, you know, in comparison, which you should never compare, but we do, but that somehow in comparison to others, I still think maybe I have more maternal ambivalence, not that I don't love my children, but more that it seems easier for me, I think, to keep parts of me for myself, particularly as they age, that it's maybe not as hard for me to separate me from them, which sometimes I feel like other people do struggle with. And it's hard for me to even say, because I think that it's sort of might be perceived as a weird thing to say, but I feel like with you and given the things you're exploring in here, that one of the great things that this book does is give space for all these different types of feelings about motherhood and to give voice to things people don't want to say out loud. So thank you for that, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd love to just hear more about why it was so important for you to challenge, you know, what we can and can't talk about when it comes to motherhood. Mm, no, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I, I can totally relate to that. And I also think, I don't know if you feel this way, but it is hard to say that kind of thing out loud because you do feel like there's a sense of shame or you open yourself up to judgment. And I don't know if you <laughs> felt this but sometimes I feel like you don't want your kids to hear that or think that, you know, you should, it's, it's a bit, and now that I'm like, you know, doing these interviews and stuff. And it, I always think like, wow, like, is my daughter going to look back on my interviews one day and be like, did my mom feel that way? And of course it has no bearing on how you feel about your children. And I think that's the whole point. And that's why I think it's so good to share that and to say that and be honest about that because feeling ambivalent or having those days or, you know, longer than those days, those longer stretches of time when, when you really feel like motherhood is not for you, or you are not enjoying it at that time, or you are resenting the responsibilities that come with motherhood. All of those things are, they're so hard to admit to, but they don't change the way you feel about your children or the love you have for them. And I think that that's the fear. That's the fear that we feel like we're opening ourselves up to. And it's just where we're at in society, you know, is that there's always been that shame and judgment attached to it. It's so interesting to me that that hasn't really changed much. And so there's such important conversations, you know, and such important things to say out loud to try to change that. And I, in writing this book, I mean, I think, well, I guess a couple of things. One, I think when you're writing your first book, at least the majority of the time that you're writing that draft or exploring the book, in my case, like I just was writing because I felt like I had something to say and I wanted to explore it and I wanted to work it out through fiction. And, you know, you can really let go of those inhibitions, I think, when you're writing in that state. And I think that was part of this book, too, was really being able to go deep and be honest. I think where it came from was just my own experience as a mother. And I started writing this when my son was six months old and there was a 
lot going on at that time because he was born with a, an illness, a chronic illness that he wasn't diagnosed until he was two weeks old. And it was it was a hard first year of living at the children's hospital and trying to get his health better and all of the complications that come along with that. But also, even aside from that, I was just so aware of how different it felt versus, you know, what people had told me it would feel like. And thinking through all of the conversations that you have about motherhood when you are deciding whether or not to have children and once your child comes and even conversations with people that you really love and trust and feel the closest to family and best friends and it still felt to me like there was this way that we were all speaking about it because we had to not because it's how we actually felt (laughs) even down to the language we use the word choices the disclaimers that we put around all of our things we say and the tone of conversation like all of those things were just so glaringly obvious to me that that was not my I mean it wasn't my reality and even though my story is not blights in a sense into my characters in a sense you know I did find that connection with my son and I loved him right away thankfully but it was more the sort of that bigger picture of, of motherhood and I just thought why are we not really sharing it why are we not really saying it yeah and it's not only the maternal ambivalence beforehand but it's the lack of support when you're in it you wrote beautifully on on page 38. I'd been warned about those hard early days. I'd been warned about breasts like cement boulders, cluster feeds, the squirt bottle. I'd read all the books. I'd done the research. Nobody talked about the feeling of being woken up after 40 minutes of sleep on bloodstained sheets with the dread of knowing what had to happen next. I felt like the only mother in the world who wouldn't survive it. The only mother who couldn't recover from having her perineum stitched from her anus to her vagina. The only mother who couldn't fight through the pain of newborn gums cutting like razor blades on her nipples. The only mother who couldn't pretend to function with her brain in the vice of sleeplessness. The only mother who looked down at her daughter and thought, please go away. I mean, that doesn't even have to be something that stays with you or that can be a fleeting thing, but it is not discussed and there's no support for it and there's no immediate place to vent those things and to say this is, and just to have someone say back, yeah, it can be really hard. Yeah. It gets better. It'll get worse again. You have to take the good and the bad. And I feel like that definitely gets omitted from the story that uh, about new motherhood. And I don't know if it's just leftover, don't talk about it, or don't even let those thoughts in. And Kate and I had done a, an episode on the unlikable female protagonist. And we were talking about all of the different ways that women are perceived as unlikable. And there are so many different ways, by the way, it's not just one thing. We talked about how far the unlikable female protagonist has come. And I said the next frontier I thought was motherhood because it is still the place where people cringe just to hear something as real. There is not one mother who has never looked at the child and said go away (laughs) or in their head in their head or or out loud yeah I mean there's just not it's just it's very overwhelming and consuming of your time of your energy of your emotion of all sorts of things we don't have to give and there are endless pits of need (laughs) so it's not (laughs) something that you can avoid and yet it's not really discussed and again it's still the place where when we read something like that people have a reaction and it's Mm -hmm. like you're still not mothers are still like this no don't go there don't have her be a bad mother don't have anything bad going on there and or if she's bad it's so ridiculous as you said like the trope and then it becomes just like mommy dearest Mm -hmm. type thing it's not what you're doing and what you've done in the push which is real why it blew us away yes Thank you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wasn't sure how life and the things I've written about would really resonate with people or not. I wasn't sure, you know, how people would come to it or there really has been a variety of reactions, you know, mixed reactions to it. And I think that's fair for sure. And I think that I have received so many messages and notes from readers who have said it's exactly what you've just said is that their story is not Blythe. Blythe's fiction and Blythe goes to some very dark, very challenging places that I hope none of us ever have to experience. But there also is just that day-to-day relatability of what she's going through. And to your point, it can be a fleeting moment. It is not your be-all, end-all motherhood experience, but it is a moment. And Blythe has a lot of these moments that I can certainly relate to and that I'm happy to have readers be able to relate to. But I think there's other people that have found it 
it offensive or have found it to go too far or it has made them so wildly uncomfortable that they cannot finish the book. And I understand that. Like that is a perfectly acceptable reaction to this. And we all have a different tolerance for consuming things that make us uncomfortable or that are too complicated or too dark. So yeah, I think I'm always drawn to the complicated, the uncomfortable, the dark. I mean, that that is just what I'm interested in and where my curiosity goes. And so yeah, the book goes there. It definitely, it definitely goes there. And that's why when I first read it, and I texted Kate immediately, like repeatedly, and I said, this is the gone girl of motherhood. And it's for that reason that you just kind of just said it is over the top. A lot of over the top things happen both for Blythe and Violet. It is fiction. It is supposed to have high stakes, lots of drama. Good fiction should have all those things. But there is always this underlying kernel of truth and relatability that for me, like a Gone Girl was that for marriage. Now, I've never killed someone. I've never framed my husband, never yes. even thought about any of those things. And yet, if you really read Gone Girl, it's razor sharp observation about marriage. And it's not always the good times. And that was how I felt about this book. And I understand some people can't read that. But to me, that is the way you get to the truth is looking through all of the, the drama and the exaggeration of it and go, you know what, this is really true. Like, I can see this. Thanks for that. No, I really appreciate that. I mean, I think there's something interesting about how sharply we can tell the truth in fiction versus mm-hmm. not, you know, it, for all of the reasons you've just said is that sometimes it takes fiction and it takes that drama and it takes those high stakes and it takes the wild places you can go in fiction to really get at the truth in a way yes. that in a way that you cannot in a personal essay and you cannot in nonfiction. And sometimes you can't even get at another medium. There's something about fiction that really lets you go there. That's part of what is so compelling to me about writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a book, you get into their head in a way that you wouldn't on a screen. You really get to feel her thoughts and what she's going through and the ups and downs. And particularly, as you said at the beginning, the way you've written it, I think here with this intimacy and the the you, you. that just Mm -hmm. took it to another level. So I have to talk about Violet. We've talked about the complicated or perhaps unlikable women of the push, but I was most surprised and interested in Violet. I mean, we only see her from baby to age 12, but she's such a complex unsettling character and I can't think of another child character in a novel that has affected me so much her relationship with and her effect on Blythe is like the deepest and darkest aspect of the novel and I remember texting Corinne while while I was reading it and marveling really at your courage that you had to make a child a villain which you really don't see that often and Blythe says at one point of Violet she had a remarkable ability to make me hate myself and I cried at that point in the book for Blythe and I really should get on the couch another time and figure this out more because I I don't really know and I've had this debate a little bit with Corinne about what made me cry so much but I think it was because I really felt Blythe's pain that struck me that a child could make their mother hate herself that could be so cruel that it struck me but I don't know I'm sure there's more there but I would just love to hear more about your development of Violet and whether you had any concern about making such a dark character in a child oh that's so interesting no I didn't have any concern about going there with yeah with a child and I think it's because you know, that line that you that you spoke about, that impact that Violet has on Blythe, so much of that is, I think, also there, there's this claustrophobicness to it that Blythe cannot get away from her. She is her daughter. How permanent that relationship is and how fraught and emotional and loaded and permanent the mother-daughter relationship is, I think is so interesting. And I think that that's why mother-daughter relationships feel so heightened and so tense. And so we've all had that, you know, experience. Yeah, I think there's something there that does make her hate herself. And it is because of the fear and the reflection of that fear about who this person is that she has brought into the world, how responsible she is for her and what she does in society and what what she does to their family. And I think that that is just the nerve of the mother-daughter relationship there that is so hard to escape. But Violet, to me, in the same way that Blythe, I was kind of exploring her as I went, you know, Violet was sort of the same for me. It was sort of just, I didn't always know how far she would go, but I didn't question that. What she ends up doing 
or what ends up she ends up being accused of, she pushes it quite far. But I have felt like that, of course, she did. To me, that was very a natural place for her to go. But you know, it's interesting to me that as a society, we are so uncomfortable with the idea of a child who is anything less than angelic. We are so uncomfortable with the idea that a child is capable of something unthinkable or something quote unquote evil. But of course, they are capable of that. Like, I think that I was exploring why we hold children to this standard that actually I don't think is all that realistic sometimes. And and also the, the excuses that we make for children and how far we go to convince ourselves that they are a certain kind of human is interesting to me. I think you've exposed my reaction does expose that. You know, we're talking about how motherhood being the next frontier and people don't want to see mothers in a certain way. I mean, I guess I've just proven we don't want to see children. Yeah. Well, it's the counterpart to the mother. A mother isn't a mother without a child. So they go kind of hand in hand and to indict one is to indict the other and especially with the child I mean the mother gets blamed for the way the child is yeah yes definitely and I think also that fear piece I definitely remember having this like flickers of again like they don't last but these flickers of fear even when I was thinking about having children or even when I was pregnant about thinking like who is this child going to be of course you have no idea you, you can't possibly predict the child you're going to have or the person that you are going to raise in the world and I, I think we really want to convince ourselves that we have a lot of control over that because that control is comfortable right we are more comfortable to believe that we have complete control over the person you know we give birth to, the person we raise, how they turn out, who they are in the world. And I think there's a lot of mothers and a lot of women in the world who will tell you that that is not true, that they had no control over who their child ended up being. And I think even I've I've heard, you know, even through conversations about this book, women who have many children, like four or five children will tell you that, right? They will say that I did the same thing. I provided the same experience for all of them and they are wildly different people. And so there's that too, which I think is just so interesting that we don't really let ourselves have that fear because it would just be too uncomfortable. Oh, yes. So I want to talk a little bit about there's a lot of complicated women and mother daughter relationships, all of the juicy good stuff that we talk about on this podcast. But there's also the Fox piece. And this will have spoiler because the story is told in this you talking to Fox and and really Blythe is finally getting a chance to explain herself and to give more of the story than he was ever willing to listen to. Kate, do we want to talk about the ending or do we want to just let her give some thoughts on Fox? I want to talk about the ending. I mean, we can talk about Fox though too. I mean... Yeah, because he does not allow her the space to accept and that was hard for me that's where I felt most for Blythe and I'm very fortunate I have a very supportive partner and he would have believed anything I said and been you know he's always on my side in that even with the kids but Fox can't see it for himself and doesn't take into account what she's saying and discounts her and and eventually is really gaslighting her and not, Mm -hmm. you know, doing worse than just belittling her. And then it becomes worse than that. But you even worked in with him that so much of it is because of his mother, Mm -hmm. see, and how he was raised and Mm -hmm. the image that he has of what motherhood is. And it's not an excuse for him. It didn't, you know, but it does give some complexity to where he comes from. So he's not just totally a total asshole, gaslighting asshole. I mean, you're like, that is truly what he believes because he was raised that way and the only model he's seen so I think as much as he believed Blythe before they had children like oh you'll be fine yeah. you'll be fine like he yeah. didn't because he didn't think there was any other way to be like exactly. that's what mothers were like yeah. so but then obviously at a certain point he really is gaslighting her but but you did add even complexity to him because of his mother yeah. so what was the yeah no the question is why you wanted to add that element to it just because I mean other than it makes great fiction you know because the the family really does unravel and why you wanted to explore that you know when I first started writing and all the way through and I think this is why I sort of landed on this you kind of voice it was a story about life and a story about motherhood but for me it was always tightly within the context of this marriage and I think that's why I wanted us to feel like we were right in the middle of their relationship, hence why she's talking to him. And I just was always very interested in how parenthood changes a marriage, changes a relationship. We know that as individuals, when we become parents, we are irreversibly changed in very like profound and in sometimes drastic ways. 
But yet there's almost this expectation that you are still going to carry on with the same marriage as two different people. And that just never made any sense to me. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you are in a completely new relationship, I feel like once you introduce children. And so I wanted to kind of explore that in this marriage or in this couple. And Fox actually interesting. I did I worked a lot on Fox in the revisions with my editors. And and I think it's it's for I think exactly what you were saying is that we we have to understand where he's coming from as well. It's very hard to find a redeeming quality about Fox for sure. There's no excuses for him, but we have to understand why he is the way he is. And so, you know, we I think it was important that we understood his mother and we understood his family situation. And that we un, we also that we understood why Blythe fell in love with him, what their marriage and their relationship was like before it changed irreversibly. And so, yeah, Fox, I will say he started out much worse than he is right now. <laughs> yeah. So to me, he's like Fox Light. He's like a right. lighter version of like how bad he used to be. But yeah, I think why he does what he does is because the reality for Blythe, Blythe's story, what she is telling him is so inconvenient for him. And that is why he shuts her down and silences her because it's an inconvenient truth for him. It would disrupt everything he is taught that he is owed in a mother and in a wife and all of that, right? And so, you know, she is threatening so much for him that that I think is why he behaves the way he does towards her, although it is certainly not fair. And it's an awful way to treat a person, of course, but I think that's where that's coming from. And that's why I love the ending, that very end. I wasn't even going to talk about this, but and as much as I don't want anything bad to happen to Jet, if his inconvenient truth is going to come back and bite him in the ass when he realizes that inconvenient truth is partially violent and will forever be part of his life. That's why I love yeah. that ending. I'm like, oh, he's going to get it now. That's yeah. the person who's. But as far as Violet and Blythe go, Kate and I had different feelings about how sure we felt about what was actually happening. How much did Violet do? How much are we unsure about what she did? Did you leave it that way? Or do you think it was pretty clear? I wanted readers to question it. I wanted there to be some ambiguity around the ending. And I, I think most readers feel like there was some validation for Blythe at the end. I don't know if redemption is the right word, but there is a hint of that for sure at the end. And I think that's important that we feel that Blythe was validated in some way. So that is sort of how I wanted the reader to feel. But I think we don't actually know. And I think the reason that we don't actually know is because Violet is so manipulative. Violet is a child who is entirely capable of telling her mother something that is not true, admitting to something that actually she shouldn't be admitting to, to sort of play with her mother. I don't actually think Blythe is an unreliable character, but Violet certainly is. <laughs> you know, she, she is certainly an unreliable character. And so I'm not 100% on the answer myself, I think. But I do feel like Blythe deserves something at the end. Yeah. And I got it kind of from, again, more from the jet aspect than I did from the, as between Violet and Blythe, they're both unreliable in some way. And just Blythe is only unreliable insofar as everyone who tells their own story is unreliable. Yes. Yes. It's your, That's exactly it's your it. perspective, yeah. right. right? There's not, yeah. she's not proven to be and I never got the feeling that she's an outright liar, but we lie to ourselves all the time, little lies to make our own role more palatable or our own justify our own decisions or what we think we hear or what we actually did hear, even if it's not what the person said. So that still was a lot of ambiguity for me. You really did that well. At the end, having Violet say, I pushed him, but then it's through glass. And yes. I think that's yes, what I, I heard her say. What I heard. Yeah. yeah. So, so for me, it was validated. And I was one of the readers that was like, okay, even though, because Corinne and I discussed this, I'm like, no, if you wanted to make it 100% clear, you, you didn't. Well, yeah. <laughs> this conversation just proves the brilliance of this ending too, because for people who wanted validation, that is there, but there is still the ambiguity, as you point out with the jet that gives a sort of another wrapping it up. I don't know. I felt like she got her vindication against Fox, but as between Blythe and Violet, I still wasn't really sure what was happening in a good way, in a way that I was like, I don't really know here and I want more. <laughs> I could I could watch these two duel yeah. on many levels. But yeah. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. I, you know, I was just listening to the podcast that you did with Chloe Benjamin and The Immortalist. And these are very different books, of course, on The Immortalist. But I loved what she said. You had asked her the question about if she knew as she was writing, if she was confident in what had happened at the end or with the psychic and the fate of the four siblings. And I I feel the same way that she answered, which was sort of that that she's not even quite sure. And I, I almost feel like to be, if you know for sure as the writer, 
writer, I think that the whole writing of it loses a bit of magic. If you are unsure yourself, I just think it makes for a more interesting exploration of what the story is and who the characters are and what has happened. Absolutely. But that's not easy to do because (laughs) you didn't leave anyone unsatisfied. The problem with that not executed well is it feels unsatisfying. Nobody is satisfied. Right. right. And and Mm -hmm. to satisfy both kind of camps, the people who don't believe her, do believe her, whatever, you did that. And Chloe Benjamin did that as well. And that Mm -hmm. is not easy, but but delicious. Which is why we we love love both of you and your books. (laughs) Oh, thank you. So back in February, Corinne sent me an article from The Globe and Mail with the headline, How First-Time Novelist Ashley Audrain Secured a Multi-Million Dollar Deal for the Push. And the subject line of the email she sent me said, Goals. Okay, so in my response, we had not read the book, obviously, yet. (laughs) So my response after reading the article was just, wow, we were clearly impressed. So can you tell our listeners who may not have read this article about your road to publication, just generally from landing your dream agent Mm. to the staggering speed with which your debut novel sold to publishers? Because it's pretty impressive. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it, it all feels very a bit of a dream still. But yeah, so I'd been working on this book for probably, I think it was like three years and a bit, and sort of had got it to a point where I felt like it was as good as I could get it. <laughs> I'd revised it a million times, and it just sort of felt like it was ready to share with agents. And I think an important part is that I worked in publishing for the two years before I went on maternity leave and had my son. So that was very helpful in a sense that I sort of knew knew how the process could work, or I knew the names of agents. I didn't know them, but I sort of had that familiarity with it all, which I think is very helpful. And I had made a list of five agents that were sort of my dream agents. And I know actually at that time, though, I had met somebody who worked at, or she was the head of Penguin Canada at the time who I had worked for. I had met her, we had stayed friendly, and I'd met her for a tea one day. And I was so nervous to tell her that I'd written this book because I didn't talk to anybody yet. When I was in my publishing job, I never told anybody that I was working on a book or that I had this dream of publishing a book one day or that I identified as a writer. And I had sat down, I was so nervous to tell her and her name's Nicole. I said, Oh, Nicole, there's something I want to tell you. And I'm really nervous to tell you. And she said, let me guess, you wrote a book. <laughs> like she just knew she was like, I just I always just knew you were gonna. So I guess I, I wasn't very self aware from that perspective. But she gave me great advice. And I had been talking about there were two or three agents that I sort of knew that were in Canada that were like based in Toronto. And I was planning on thinking about maybe reaching out to them. And Nicole said to me, Look, what are your goals with this book? What do you really want to do? And, you know, I told her and she said, then go, you have to go big. You have to make, like, forget who you know, forget all of that. Just make a list of the dream agents and just go for it. To have her, I think, say that to me, I thought, okay, I will, like I will. And, you know, she hadn't read the book. This is just kind of friend to friend advice. And it was good advice because it helped me to see things differently or see the possibilities differently. And so I did, I like made that list and went out to five agents and was lucky to hear back from them. But I heard back right away like within 10 minutes of sending an email from Madeline Milburn who is my agent now and she wrote back right away and there was something about the email that she sent me back that I just thought okay like something is clicking between us she read it there was like a dinner party and she was you know reading it overnight and she got right back to me. And in the meantime, I had had interest from other agents too, although I'd also had some rejections from that list of five who felt that it was too dark or it wasn't for them. But she and I really clicked and she was in London and I'm in Toronto. So we are so far apart and weren't going to be able to meet. But she said, as it happened, she was going to be in New York a week and a half later. And she said, would you fly to New York and meet me for dinner so we can meet face to face and really talk about this book and really talk about your career and like what you're looking for. And I remember thinking like, who am I to be like flying to New York? have like dinner with this literary agent from London like it all just felt so you know wild but you know of course I did it was wonderful and we like agreed to work with each other basically like on the spot and ordered champagne and just had a really nice night together and I just I really just felt like she understood the book and had such great hopes for it and she was so excited about it she'd already put lots of thought into it and planted seeds you know with publishers and was just on it and she really lit the match that the book just kind of picked up from there I mean she really is a life changer like she changed my life and that dinner that meeting with her really changed my life and from there yeah there was there was a deal right away in the UK and then in Canada and then the US and it all happened from there so it was incredibly lucky it was so much of this whole thing is good fortune and being in the right place at the right time and sending the right email at the right time and and it's all you know and writing a wonderful novel of course (laughs) course. (laughs) yeah 
Thanks. And it didn't just stop there. I mean, Hollywood came calling, of course, right away. I know the film rights were mm-hmm. sold, that article said, in a nine-way auction to David Heyman, whose Heyday Films produced mm-hmm. the Harry Potter films and Marriage Story and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm so, sorry, which ones? No. <laughs> yeah, what, what are those? I don't know. <laughs> So how thrilling was wow. that process and why did you choose Heyday Films mm-hmm. and, and what role will you have, if any, in the adaptation? Yeah, that whole process was really wild because like the publishing part of it I was familiar with and the whole screen option part I was not. Like that was all new, <laughs> crazy territory. And yeah, it was sort of just kind of figuring out as I went along. My agent lined up these conference calls with each team that was interested in producing and you're sort of asking each other questions and trying to figure out direction that people are interested in taking it. And I think for me, you know, it was really important to me. I'll preface this by saying that I really believe that once you hand over those screen rights, that is not your piece of art anymore. That is someone else's. And I I really don't feel precious about it from that perspective. Like I can't wait to see it through the eyes of a different creator and be a different form of art. But one thing that was important to me, I think, in those conversations is I think it is very easy. It would be very easy to take this story and turn it into that kind of trope of the crazy mother that we see on screen a lot. And I didn't want that for Blythe. (laughs) I didn't want that for this story. I felt like whatever we do, it feels important that there is that thread of empathy throughout about her situation and that relatability for her. And I really felt like David Heyman and his team really understood that. And that was important to them as well. Talking to them about the, it just became this big book club, you know, that we all had together kind of talking. I was able to meet with him in person in London, you know, later on that summer, which was really nice. And yeah, I think they're a really great team that do really interesting work. And like Marriage Story, as I, I mean, I love, mm-hmm. I love that. I, they've done just a lot of work that I admire. And so, yeah, and I think one of the decisions was sort of, you know, movie or TV, which, you know, there are people who sort of, you know, were interested on either side. And I think for me, you know, I know we all know this, but TV is having such a moment right now. I think especially with these adaptations, which I know you guys have talked about, yes, all my favorite ones for love, sure. But yeah. Yeah, there's something about that bingeability of them and how many more hours you have to tell a story on screen. And I've I've really loved a lot of these stories about women written by women and then adapted by women for screen or directed by women. I, I just feel like it's a real place where women's voices are doing something exciting right now. And so that's kind of why I wanted to go to the direction of television. So it will be a television series instead of a movie. So yeah, that makes sense. And there's so much nuance to the characters and their stories. I I don't think you could do it in a movie. I really... Yeah, I think it would be different. It'd be more of a challenge. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking a lot about not to discount the work and the idea and all of the good stuff you put into this, but the realization that there has to be some stars aligning. Mm. Yeah. Some luck, some whatever it is, some timing. Mm. And this is something that Kate and I struggle with, that belief in something else having a part in your own life and making things come together. And we struggle to believe it, even though we have so many examples of this happening in our own lives and even in our own relationship. Yes. Okay. So yes, I have a story for you that I actually have never, I don't think I've told anybody this, but I'll tell you it because I feel like you'll appreciate it more than (laughs) the average person will. Yes. But okay. So speaking of the universe and the whatever and you know the luck and everything so I want to say it was a couple months a month and a half or so before all of this happened with the book I was away with some friends we were in Arizona and I went to see a psychic there and yeah which was you know like I don't know I, I I was sort of like one of those people who wanted to believe it but hadn't been to a psychic before and when I was talking to that psychic which was a very kind of last minute kind of just go do it thing I'd have to go I really should go back I took notes and I really should go back and read them all to get the story like perfectly straight but she said to me that you're going I had mentioned that I was writing something and she immediately said oh this is going to sell all around the world the book you're writing is going to sell all around the world and she gave me two names and she said these two the names of these two people are going to be involved somehow in what happens to the success of your book and she and I had a list of these I had told you I had the list of five names of agents and she gave me the names of two of the people that were on my five on my list of five. Oh, oh my god. god. It was crazy. It was wow. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. There's no it way to amazing. interpret that. 
act otherwise. Oh. I get chills just saying it to you now because it was so oh. crazy. And I remember yes. thinking like, oh my God, like she's just giving me two names of these, of these agents that are on yeah. my fuck of five people for her to give me these two names. It's pretty crazy. <gasps> yeah. Anyways, is... Wow. It was wild. And okay. just the confidence with which, and I remember thinking like, what is she, there's no way, like there's no way this book is like, I hadn't even sent it out yet. I hadn't whatever. And she was so <sighs> certain. She said, this is going to sell in countries around the world. It's going to be all around the world. You're going to have all of these deals. And I mean that to me at the time, I was like, oh, there's no, like, I literally, I didn't even take her seriously right. at that part. Yeah. Or you're so like, that sounds she great. She was just trying to make you feel I was good. Great. She was like, trying to make yeah. you feel good. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Anyways, like, that's she's my, not gonna... my little, oh uh, my gosh. Wow. Oh, well, you can certainly share that with us yeah. because <laughs> I, having been to psychics and astrologers, I have, you, you're in a safe space. Yes. <laughs> I'm in a safe space. I felt like I was. I felt like I was. But, oh, um, but that's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, so we ask all of our authors, what is your astrological sign and do you relate to it? Yeah. Go ahead. But you the have, astrology, yeah. I, so I'm a Taurus. And oh. I, oh, it's your season. Oh, yeah. And I, I totally relate to being a Taurus. Like I am a Taurus through and through completely. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good. And so is my husband, actually. My husband is also a Taurus and we are both textbook. Taurus. Right. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Textbook Taurus. Oh, okay. We are on a Taurus streak right now. We are. We interviewed are we? an author on Tuesday who's a Taurus and then Taurus? Joanna Rakoff, too, recently. Oh, is she? Yes. Oh, I love her. I love yes. her. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I know, yeah. so I remember reading in your Twitter bio, your Air, one of your I'm an Aries. Yes, yes. your Aries. Yes. And Kate, I'm you? Leo. Oh, I'm a Leo. Leo. Right, so that's right. I remember that we are okay. the fire signs over right. here yes right. the the question can go in so many different directions it's why we kind of keep it. it short and sweet and it we can move on or we can listen to whatever stories you have to go with and I love the variety of the spectrum that we found from authors yeah, yeah. oh that's so and interesting you know, it's interesting my daughter yeah, is a Sagittarius oh. yeah and I often I often think of her in that like I don't know if you've done this with your kids too but I do look at my oh. kids and I think huh like yeah. I try to analyze them from their sign or or, oh, yes. or sometimes I feel like I prepare myself for who they will be in the world yeah. because of their sign you know yes. oh yes. yes yeah have we done that I mean that's like <laughs> she's like done, done their charts like. <laughs> well also I have a Gemini who I cannot oh. understand because and Corinne's married to one so she has to like translate for me for my own child totally. like what is yeah. happening over here right she's like, well, he's a Gemini yes I'm like, yeah. okay. Joe, yes this is Explained totally fine yeah totally yeah. normal it's gonna be okay all right well we oh, have taken that. up a lot of your time the oh, one no. thing we just end with because because we get such great suggestions is if there's anything you're really into right now like books movies podcasts tv shows like anything that you'd like to share with our listeners who might also yeah. be interested i know you've talked about this already but i am in the middle of watching i may destroy you and i just i mean i i'm really enjoying no none of my friends are watching it right now so your recap i'm like living for your recap <laughs> because it's giving me like something to wonder about but i just i think it's the most brilliant i mean just absolutely brilliant i'm loving that right now that's the most exciting thing I've watched in a long time. But also I have a stack of books here that I've been reading. You know what? I just finished a book that I love and I feel like it hasn't got a lot of attention because it came out at the beginning of the pandemic, mm, which is hard. Yeah, that was. Is this book Sea Wife by Amity Gage. Oh, have you, yes. Have you heard of this or read this? It is so good. Oh. It is. I have like maybe 20 pages left and I'm. it's one of those books where I just don't even want to finish it because I'm enjoying it so much. Yes. But it's a it's a beautiful novel. It's a book about a marriage, really a deep dive on a marriage a really interesting take on a marriage of a woman and her husband and their two kids two very small kids go to sea they like set sail and it's beautiful but it also has this suspenseful element to it and it's one of those books that I feel like if it hadn't have been published at the beginning of the pandemic I feel like it would have been bigger like more people would read it it would right. be a bigger book because it is just brilliant oh, but, I've yeah. actually downloaded that because and I haven't read it I'm embarrassed to say but Ellen Hildebrand plugged that and that's oh, why I downloaded because yeah. she said at the time it was one of the best books she had ever read so I remember Love really feel that way too. Loving it. Oh, yeah, I, I think that. it's yeah. really worth reading, and I hope it finds another moment. This, that would also make an incredible movie. I think this book would make a real incredible movie. Oh yeah, being and, out on the water. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, really cool. It's yeah, yeah, very beautiful. And what else am I reading that I'm loving? You know, tonight I have an event with an author named Donna Friedis who wrote The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano, and it's I don't know if you've seen this. It just came out I think in like March or maybe even April. And I have that here too. It has a beautiful cover. But this book 
is really on the topic of maternal ambivalence. I mean, it's a story about a character named Rose and the author takes you through nine different versions of her life had all that all are different depending on whether or not she had children. And so it's fascinating because I mean, I was talking to my sister-in-law the other day and we were just bemoaning this whole pandemic with kids situation and whatever. And she was saying, you know, very honestly, she said to me, you know, there's not a day goes by. She's a great mother and loves her children, but said not a day goes by where I don't think about what my life would be like if I didn't have children. Like there's, there's that moment of like, wow, if I didn't have children, you know, and I think that's such an honest thing. And I think we've all had those moments through the day. And this book is really about that. It's about the different directions our lives can go. And so I just, I love that she's tackling again, that kind of the, the taboos of motherhood in that novel. I, yeah, I just think it's great. I highly recommend that too. Yeah, it's really, really good. And the, and the thing I'm dying to watch that I haven't watched that I feel like I want to watch this weekend is Promising Young Woman. Uh, oh, yes. Have you guys seen that's that? That's on our you, list. Okay, okay. No, meaning it's been on our list okay. since from the beginning January, of time. Yes. From the minute, before it even came out. But at first we didn't do it because it was still only like pay, video on demand pay. And we, we like to do things that people have more accessibility to. But now it's just become ridiculous. How we, you know, ridiculous. Right. Like it's been on our schedule like yeah. 10 times. Yes. And we've read. Too. Right. Anyway, we, we will do it. it. We're in the, yeah. the books publicity season yeah. though so yeah as you that's know, and so we've had author so reading. many author interviews and yes. we love those but that one just keeps getting pushed we'll get yeah. to it yeah, yeah. But it's coming i've it's heard coming. so many good things about me that too one. Yeah. Oh, and the Oscars. Yeah, whatever. They gave oh, me. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. You know that exactly. too. But... Best original mm-hmm. screenplay. Okay. No big yeah. deal. Yeah. But this was such a delight. I know. Thank you so much. We, you. We've just so enjoyed talking with you. I just loved it. Oh, this was so nice. Thank you for having me, guys. It's really been fun. Book two, I know you're working on it. Mm. Do you have deadlines? I hope they're really like pushing you hard. Get it in, get it done. We want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> They are. Yeah, you know, my my editors right now have a version of it that it'll still go through revisions, but they're reading something now. But yeah, I've loved writing it. It's been so fun to write. I mean, just like being in the heads of different people, it touches on a lot of the same themes as the push. It really explores marriage and motherhood in different ways. And yeah, it's just it's been a lot of fun. I don't know when it'll be out or when it'll be finished, but but it's it's happening. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's progress. We can take that. I can hold that to wait. And you'll have to come back with that one too. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.